Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Like it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome to this week's Nature Podcast. In the show, we're asking when babies get their first bacteria and how sensitive the climate is to carbon dioxide. Plus, super-fast photography and peckish penguins. I'm Sharmini Bundell. And I'm Adam Levy. When did you first come into contact with bacteria? Of course, every day we're practically swimming with microbes. But what about before we enter the world, while we're still in our mother's wombs? For a long time, the womb has been thought of as a pristine environment. At first, it started off that people all thought it was sterile, more or less. So, I mean, if, if bacteria start multiplying over there, then things are going wrong. This is microbiologist Marcus de Hoffau. The idea of the sterile womb has been around for a century. But recently, researchers have started to challenge this dogma. And not everyone's on board. Well, I would say that the current understanding is quite in flux. Uh, so uh, people saying one thing and other people saying another. One of the researchers arguing that the womb may not be sterile is obstetrician Shirsty Agard. Our work, published in 2014, certainly challenged in a very formal sense this notion of, quote-unquote, how sterile the intrauterine environment is. Shirsty's 2014 work investigated the placenta, the link from the developing baby to the mother that feeds the fetus while protecting it from infection. Shirsty tested hundreds of placentas. And, surprisingly, gene sequencing detected bacteria in many of the samples. Finding bacteria in the placenta had long been seen as a sign of problems with a pregnancy. But Shirsty was finding DNA even in placentas from healthy pregnancies. This suggested to her that these bacteria may not be harmful, but actually an important part of development. And if the womb is not in fact a sanctuary from bacteria, this raises all sorts of questions as to what they're actually doing there. Shirsty wonders if they might have a role to play in everything from our developing digestion to our early immune system. How does a fetus's developing immune system 
become educated to what is potentially pathogenic or dangerous microbes and which ones are commensal and friendly. And it's important for us to understand where those microbes come from and what they do, not just kind of trace the lineage, but to really understand that function of a mom and a baby being in some level of communication. Other researchers are also fascinated by the possibility that the placenta may have its own community of bacteria, a microbiome. There's been a wealth of work to characterise what role these placental microbes could play. This body of research gives Shirsty confidence in her findings. You know, there are literally dozens and dozens of labs that have been able to replicate our findings from different corners of the globe and using different techniques. There's certainly one paper that couldn't replicate our findings, but they used very different techniques in doing so. But to some, this one paper's failure to replicate is more than an anomaly. One researcher with serious doubts is Marcus, who we heard from earlier. I'm currently working at the Sire Institute as a postdoctoral fellow on the supposed placental microbiome. This study, Lauder et al., couldn't differentiate between the DNA extracted from placentas and DNA found on lab equipment. To Marcus, this implies that researchers haven't found some kind of placental microbiome. Instead, he thinks they've just inadvertently been detecting sequences from their labs. From their DNA isolation kits or their PCR kits. And all we're seeing is basically rubbish and contamination. What's more, Marcus says that he has conducted similar research, as yet unpublished, that also failed to differentiate placental bacterial DNA from the DNA found on LabKit. But Shirsty isn't ready to throw away the dozens of studies on placental bacteria just yet. After all, her own study tested empty vials to compare placental samples to and detected differences. Plus, her study showed differences between placentas from mothers who had given birth early or at full term, as well as between mothers who had had or hadn't had infections during pregnancy. So it's not that every single placenta that we analysed looked the same. They actually differed based upon discrete pregnancy characteristics, again arguing against the notion that this was simply contaminated out of the built environment in which we were working. Marcus, and others, remain deeply sceptical. He not only feels that these differences could be explained by contamination, but that a great deal of microbiome research might have similar issues. It's not just the placenta which has this problem. There are lots of studies out there looking at uh, human tissues, and they report all these different kinds of bugs in there. And all of these papers, they basically they are producing nonsense. So then... When do we first encounter bacteria? Do healthy placentas contain bacteria that plays some role in our development in the womb? It seems more work is needed before a consensus is reached. For Shirsty, this means developing a better understanding of what role such bacteria would have. I really think it's going to be continuing to describe what that function of these placental microbes must be being able to show that there's a translatable step between what a pregnancy exposure is and the end result on an offspring's microbiome. But for Marcus, seeing is believing. And nothing he's seen so far has convinced him. 
you would need multiple different uh, study approaches. So not only sequencing, but also microscopy and done on a sufficient magnification that you can actually see the bacteria. That was Marcus de Hoffau. You also heard from Shirsty Agard, who's at the Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. Studies are now getting underway that could answer the question of baby bacteria once and for all. To find out about them and more on the divides between some researchers, read the feature in this week's Nature. Still to come, wild sex turns explosive. That is an incredibly clickbaity way of describing it. It is technically accurate though, right? Technically, yes, technically it is accurate. Well, listeners, you can judge for yourselves in the news chat at the end of the show. But before we get to that, Benjamin Thompson is here with this week's research highlights. Atoms are running out of places to hide. Powerful X-ray pulses can now see right through molecules in a matter of femtoseconds. Physicists use a particle accelerator to agitate electrons until they emit bright bursts of X-rays. Squishing the electrons tightly together just before they release the X-rays stops them from repelling each other. This generated a laser beam that lasted just 10 quadrillionths of a second. Such snappy snaps can reveal the atomic structure of a molecule before the X-rays cause any damage. The flashy technology could help scientists study individual viruses in high definition. Shine a light on that story over at Physical Review Letters. I knew I wasn't the only one who enjoyed a late-night snack. It turns out that paternal penguins also enjoy eating after dark. Emperor penguins often go several months without eating while they make their way inland to mate and then sit on their eggs throughout the long, dark winter. However, males in a colony in southern Antarctica found a way around this long fast. Satellite tags on four males caught the birds shuffling off the ice for a furtive fish supper at night. They did this during the mating season, but before being landed with egg-sitting duty, and it was only possible as their colony was unusually close to the water. This sneaky snack would give them an energy boost and reduce their time spent fasting, but diving into the dark is risky business. More penguins may have to do this as their colonies are forced further south by thinning ice. Devour more of this research over at the Journal of Experimental Biology. Next up, Benjamin's back and he's brought a story about climate change. Last week on The Nature Podcast, we did some future gazing trying to predict what the big science stories might be for 2018. One of these predictions was that countries who signed up for the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement would be outlining their progress towards meeting their climate change targets. The agreement aims to stop the world warming by more than 2 degrees Celsius and ideally keep the warming under 1.5 degrees. But how much more might the temperature rise? This depends, first and foremost, on how much carbon dioxide we emit. But even if we knew this, there's a great deal of uncertainty about what might happen. In the past few weeks, two papers have been published in Nature that use different methods to try and constrain this uncertainty. But why is this something that needs to be done? Here's Patrick Brown from Stanford University, the author of one of the papers. Well, just from a scientific perspective, we always want to narrow the ranges of uncertainty around various things. Uh, As a physical climate scientist, I want to understand the physical climate system as best that I can. From a more practical perspective, if we're interested in, say, limiting uh, global warming to below 2 degrees Celsius, it's useful to know exactly how much emissions we can put into the atmosphere Uh, before we're very likely to exceed that threshold. In a paper published this week, another climate scientist, 
Peter Cox from the University of Exeter, is looking at how sensitive the climate is to carbon dioxide. The more sensitive our planet, the higher temperature will rise for a given amount of emissions. A common measure of this is the equilibrium climate sensitivity. It's a bit of an abstract concept though, as Peter explains. Imagine that you just did a very crude experiment on the climate system, which is to just double the carbon dioxide level in the atmosphere, and then you waited for the climate to come to equilibrium with that. And by equilibrium, we mean for the temperature to stop going up. Then the equilibrium climate sensitive is how much the globe will have warmed. So in some ways, it's the simplest possible metric of how the climate will change in response to CO2 increases. So a climate sensitivity of 2 degrees means that if all we do is double the world's CO2, we could eventually expect a 2 degree rise in temperature. But even for this simple measure, there's a great deal of uncertainty as to what the sensitivity might be. The United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, known as the IPCC, have put a range on sensitivity as being between 1.5 and 4.5 degrees, based on a wealth of available data. What's more, this range of uncertainty hasn't shrunk substantially in over 20 years. One way of understanding how temperature depends on CO2 is to see how temperature has varied with carbon dioxide levels over the recent past. Using this historical trend in temperatures is a common way of estimating equilibrium climate sensitivity, but there are many confounding factors. Peter's team did use historical temperature records, but actually they ignored the overall upward trend in these temperatures. Instead, they looked at the noisy fluctuations in temperature that can be seen in the historical record. They showed that the size of these fluctuations can be linked to the climate's sensitivity, and so measuring these fluctuations accurately provided a more precise measure of the equilibrium climate sensitivity. Whereas the IPCC typically quote a range of 1.5 to 4.5 degrees Celsius for equilibrium climate sensitivity, our likely range is 2.2 to 3.4. So the central estimate is not so different from the IPCC, it's slightly on the low side, it's about 2.8, but the range of likely ECS values is hugely reduced by about 60%. Of course, very little in this world is straightforward, and there's some uncertainty about how to reduce the uncertainty in equilibrium climate sensitivity. Indeed, only a few weeks ago, Patrick Brown, who we heard from earlier, published a study which used a different method for estimating the climate's sensitivity. This work looks at climate models, the complex software that simulates the physical processes of the climate, and tries to pick out the ones that would estimate the sensitivity most accurately. To do this, Patrick focuses on the energy budget in the upper atmosphere, and that's the relationship between the energy coming in from the sun and that radiated out by the Earth. If there's a relationship between how skillful a model is at simulating the recent past where we have observations, if there's a relationship between that and how much warming they produce in the future, then we can use observations to essentially shift the projections of the future warming such that they're emphasizing the models that are most skillful uh, over this time period when we have observations. And it turns out that the most skillful models at simulating the recent past tended to be the ones that predicted the highest warming in the future. But how do these two studies compare? Patrick's estimate of the equilibrium climate sensitivity range is between 3.0 and 4.2 degrees, while Peter's is between 2.2 and 3.4. Although it's important to note that they use different confidence limits, there are clearly differences between the two ranges, and these sit alongside many other estimates derived from different methods. So, if two new efforts to reduce uncertainty are giving different results, are things just as uncertain as when we started? Do we risk presenting policymakers and those planning for the future with an information overload? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a legitimate risk from the perception of the public. 
um, which I think is why it's important to have assessment reports like the IPCC or the Royal Society or National Academy of Sciences uh, to really say, okay, let's not take any individual study too seriously. No one should take our estimate as gospel and no one should take this new estimate as gospel. You, you should take into account the full uh, range in the literature. And uh, I think over time, you know, as studies come out and progress over years and decades, that kind of central estimate can change. And I believe that our estimate will stand the test of time, but we will see. That's not for me to say at this point. I think there is a, um, a responsibility for climate science to reduce the uncertainty in the things that matter most. A colleague of mine recently said that, you, you, you know, you don't get to decide whether your work is worthwhile. It's for the community to decide whether it's worthwhile. I hope this is part of a way to say, let's use everything we've got and the data we've got, which is increasing by the minute, to get a handle on these things by combining models and observations and theory together in a way that surprisingly doesn't happen very often. That was Peter Cox. You can read his paper and a News and Views article over at nature.com forward slash nature. You also heard from Patrick Brown. His paper's available at the same address. Time now for this week's news chat and reporter Ewan Calloway joins us in the studio. Hi, Ewan. Hello there. Now, first up, China has been trying for some time to build AI research. What's the status of things as they are right now in China? Well, the news we're reporting this week is my my colleague David Sarnowski, who's based in based in Shanghai, has reported that a mountainous district in western Beijing is likely to be the seat of a new kind of AI, artificial intelligence uh, business park. The Chinese government is interested in investing about two point one billion in creating this industrial park in hopes of luring AI startups and, and, and companies to plant themselves there. And hope seems to be, to some extent, the operative word, because at the moment, uh, China seems to be finding it somewhat difficult to, to attract the researchers they want. I think that's, that's the theme in, in the story, is that it's an open question. You know, if you build it, will they come, I think is what, is what this story is, is asking. And, you know, there's some, some sources quoted, including people uh, from Microsoft's uh, AI outfit in China that aren't sure if researchers want to uh, move to a, what sounds like a rural area known for its temples and mushroom production. So that seems to be a real <laughs> open question. You know, China's, China's government can invest all this money, but are they going to get the talent? Are they going to get the companies? But this isn't a new issue for China. It seems like China, to some extent, has been struggling to get the talent for a little while. Yeah, I think that, that that's what it seems to be the case. I mean, I think Chinese universities are training lots of students who are highly coveted for their skills in machine learning and other, and other techniques that comprise AI. But it sounds like a lot of them are being lured overseas to the US, to Canada, to Israel, uh, you know, where you've got companies flush with, with cash there and, and universities cities uh, with a lot of expertise. So yeah, China's having, I think, some trouble retaining its, its students. Is money just the problem? Are researchers just being offered more in countries like the US? I'm not sure if that's entirely the case, because as the story reports, some Chinese companies that take advantage of AI, including Tencent and Baidu, are offering people, you know, a million dollars per year in, in salary. So I don't think that can be the only part of the story. Is this an issue that is specific to universities and companies in China? I mean, 
artificial intelligence is quite a big field worldwide. Yeah, I don't. I don't think so. I think. I think this is a a, a global trend. Companies are really, really competing for what they perceive as a dearth in, in talent in, in people who have the skills to develop these systems. I mean, you hear about companies like DeepMind and others establishing you know, labs in, in, in Canada. I think DeepMind opened a facility in Alberta, and that's because uh, there's a pipeline of talent coming out of universities there. So the same thing that's happening in China is happening all over the world. Let's move on from artificial intelligence to a story that you wrote on artificial sex. Researchers are trying to make species unable to reproduce. Why is that something that you'd want to be able to do? Well, the sex isn't artificial. At least they're, they're trying. <laughs> um, so this research is about establishing reproductive barriers. So two populations, two organisms can't interbreed, which by some definitions, you could say that makes them separate species. I'm not a systematist. I'm not going to get involved in that. The goal of doing this is, I mean, you can think of a lot of reasons why you might not want one organism to interbreed with another. If, you're, uh, if you've got a GM crop, say, that has pesticide resistance or makes a really valuable pharmaceutical, you don't want it mixing genes with either regular domestic crops, unmodified crops, or with weedy relatives that it's interfertile with. So you can, you can imagine that as being one, one reason, one of many reasons why you want, might want to prevent sex. So is that uh, what the researchers are aiming to do, to stop some kind of artificial variant uh, breeding with potentially natural species? The definite goal here is to prevent a gen genetically modified organism from breeding with an unmodified organism, be it wild or domestic. But it's not just biocontainment that this would use, be useful for. My reporting suggested that this technology, this way of keeping populations from breeding, could actually be used to control pests an invasive species. So if you can have a GM species or a GM population that can't interbreed with, uh, say, a mosquito that's transmitting some sort of disease, you can actually, by deploying large numbers of your GMO mosquito, you can actually tilt the, the population so that one is favored and the wild mosquitoes eventually can't find anyone to breed with because their offspring aren't fertile. It seems like whenever we cover stories like this, it often comes down to uh, trying to eliminate malaria-carrying mosquitoes. That, that's an easy easy target. I mean, malaria is, you know, one of the world's leading, leading killers. And I think there's a reason people are looking to apply genetic technologies uh, to control malaria-carrying mosquitoes. Though the mosquito, I believe that these researchers are interested in, is the one uh, that carries dengue and Zika and chikungunya. Not, not malaria, at least not yet. And in terms of how it actually works, what have the researchers done? It's kind of a tricky but quite ingenious system. And when I wrote about it, I made it analogous to like a kind of a poison and an antidote. And the poison in this system is based on basically cranking up the expression of a gene any gene that whose expression, when you turn it all the way up, is toxic. So in their proof of principle experiments in yeast, they found that they could turn up the expression of this, uh, this cytoskeletal protein called actin. And if you do that, yeast cells pop. And now the antidote is basically a, a, a kind of a mutated sequence next to this gene that makes it impossible for the mechanism they use to, to crank up expression. So if you have two yeast cells and they breed and they've carry both the poison and the antidote, they're fine. Sex is all good. 
But if you have a yeast cell that has both the poison and the antidote, so it's fine, and breed it with a yeast cell that has neither, that lacks the antidote, then uh, a lot of its offspring were popping like balloons in their experiments. Now, does this always work, or could life find a way around this? Of course life could find a way around this. I think resistance to something like this is inevitable. Um, you could think of some smart ways to, to overcome it. Some researchers I spoke with, they weren't completely convinced that the system itself was, was evolutionarily stable. They thought that an organism carrying both this poison and antidote, that it might be at a competitive disadvantage compared to, to wild organisms, making it hard to replace them. So a lot of work needs to be done. These are only proof of principle experiments, but they have high hopes for this. And you know, I think time will tell whether this approach is successful. Thank you, Ewan. For more on that explosive sex story and other less raunchy science news, head to nature.com forward slash news. That's it for this week, but for more ways scientists are taking a swipe at mosquitoes, check out Ewan's podcast piece from the 5th of October 2017 episode, where he found out about breeding malaria-free mozzies. We'll be back next week with all the latest and greatest research. Until then, I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Sharmini Bundell. Thanks for listening. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.